Hello, I'm Penelope Maver and welcome to Earth Converse podcast, where we explore our relationship and conversations with the earth, all in the hope of inspiring a deeper connection with ourselves, each other and the earth that is our home. And I've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast that I collaborate with Impact International and I have great pleasure of having the founder and the boss here, David Williams, who's been um, important in my life for the, for that reason. And I know that nature has been a great source of grounding, belonging, connection, inspiration and healing today. And so he'll tell his story, his farming background and Outward Bound and how it led to Impact International. And he's got views on um, maybe how to heal through walking. I'm not too sure. He'll tell. And also a vision for the future, reimagining the future in these, in these times. So, Dave, welcome. And let's just start. So I know start at the earliest memory. Hi, Penny. Nice to be with you. Um, earliest memory. Uh, well, I, I guess the earliest important memory was um, uh, my early childhood, which was spent in a place called Lathkill Dale, uh, which is one of the dales in Derbyshire in the Peak District National Park. And uh, I moved there at four years old with my family. Uh, my dad was the youngest brother of a family of four four killed children and grew up on a farm elsewhere. And of course, if you're the youngest son, you don't get entitled to the, to, to take mm-hmm. over the farm when you, when you, when you graduate. So, uh, luckily my mother had an uncle, uh, who had never married and was coming towards the end of his life. And he offered this farm up to us, um, to move to. So we moved from, the middle of Britain to the Peak District National Park. As I say, I was I was four years old. Uh, there was there was uh, my mum and dad, myself, and my brother at that time. And um, this farm had not been touched or developed um, since my mum's uncle's parents had passed away. Mm. So they were we were farming with two Shire horses. We didn't have a tractor. <laughs> we were milking cows by hand. I say we, I was five years old. This is what my dad yeah. was doing. Yeah. Um, we had no electricity. We had no running water. We had a massive stone-built tank at the back of the house that collected water off the roof, and that water was then brought into the house with an old lead pipe to the one tap in the kitchen, uh, which is where I remember having my morning wash before setting off to school, stood in the window. Um, and we had no bathroom. Mm. So uh, Sundays was bath day. Mm. Um, we used to get this old um, zinc bath out of the shed and put it in front of the fire and fill it up with hot water. And by this time... Um, uh, as well as the four of us, my, my younger sister had been born. Uh, and so she would get bathed first and then my younger brother and then me and then my mother and then my dad. And my dad used to say that he came out of the bath dirtier than when he went in. <laughs> that was, uh, so it sounds like poverty, but it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 when I look back on it, I realized that, you know, we didn't have a lot of the trappings that um, many of the people um, same age as me would have had at the time, but it didn't feel like poverty. It felt like an idyllic way of, of growing up, you know, living on a farm on the sides of a beautiful dale in the middle of the Peak Street National Park and, and learning to be a farmer. Um, I used to go to school in a little village, which was about three or four miles away. So I used to have to catch the bus every morning through into this school, the Church of England school. There were 14 children in the school. Um, so we'd have an assembly and then they'd put a screen across the middle of the one room and the kids who were under seven would go to school at one side of the screen and those of us that were over seven would go to the other side. So they were my earliest beginnings. And, um, you know, I have nothing but fond memories then. And, and I think that's when I realised that I had an affinity for the outdoors. I realised I, I, I loved being surrounded by animals. 
and uh, and surrounded by nature. Um, you know, I couldn't wait to get out of the house in the morning and I went back into the house last thing at night as late as I possibly could. Um, so that's maybe where that's maybe where a lot of the early experiences um, mm. influenced my my kind of light, later career path. Mm. Um, when I got to the age of about 10, foot and mouth had hit Britain. Um, my dad had expanded the farm, perhaps a little bit more rapidly than he should have. Uh, we'd, 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 we'd installed a generator, so we now had power to milk the cows. Um, and we had one electric light in the house that could only be put on when we weren't milking the cows because it would overpower the generator. Uh, we'd, brought, we'd brought running water in from wherever via, via Alcathene pipe. We still didn't have a bathroom. Um, the toilet was a little kind of bucket in the in the coal shed, yeah. um, and uh, and it it became clear to my mum and dad that they'd basically borrowed too much money to grow the farm, and with foot and mouth and the restrictions on trading, so you can't sell or buy cattle or sheep. Um, they weren't going to be able to meet all of their um, requirements with the bank, so they made the difficult decision to sell up. Mm. And uh, that was a very, very difficult time for me because um, I can remember the day as if it was yesterday. Um, you know, the auctioneer arrives. There's a guy arrived in a burger van and gave me a free burger. I remember. <laughs> but, that's all I got out of the day. <laughs> and, then, and then you just watched everything that my parents had worked so hard for going round in a circle as the auctioneer was selling things off. He even tried to sell my dog. Thank God I, I managed to save that. And then off we went and we moved to another little house in another little village where I went to another school. This time, you know, it's massive. There were 35 kids in this school um, and um, no bathroom. We had electricity, mm. we had running water, no bathroom. Um, toilet at the bottom of the garden this time a long drop and uh, that's where I stayed and, and uh, managed to managed to pass my 11 plus which is the exam you take in the UK to decide whether you go to grammar school or not and I passed it um, so I then started going to the big school in Buxton in Derbyshire um, Buxton Grammar School I was the only kid from my um, junior school to go um, so again, you know, this was 400 kids. This is massive for me. Um, so I'm meeting these kids for the very first time um, and trying to make my way in the world. Can't play football, can't play cricket. Um, I was quite good at running, so I got into the cross-country team. And, uh, you know, that kind, of, that kind of background had kind of steeped me in this experience of nature, always living in the countryside, living very, very close to nature. Um, um, but it also made me quite shy, quite introverted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, so it took me a while to kind of start coming out of my shell at school. <clears throat> and then when I was 16, we actually moved again into town and, and, uh, we had a proper bathroom. So when I was 16, <laughs> sitting in the bath thinking this is ours. This is great. Wow. Um, yeah, so that was kind of early experiences. Lot, lots. I learned lots about um, farming, obviously. I think I learned a lot about how to work with animals and how to respect them and how to work with them as, as opposed to trying to dominate them. Mm -hmm. um, so even at the age of five, it was my job to go and fetch the cows from three or four fields away, bring them down the main road twice a day for, mm -hmm. for milking. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I've got I've got fantastic memories of haymaking mm. uh, when all the families would come together and help each other, and um, just just a, a joyous experience of of growing up in in a beautiful place mm. um, in in an, in what what is now perhaps best described um, as regenerative farming. You know, we we were we were this was not a high input high output farm. It was a small holding. And you worked with the land. You learned how to work with the land and not despite the land. Mm. So we didn't bring artificial fertilizers into the into the farm. You know, we used the manure from the cattle and spread that out. And um, you know, we, we we had a strict crop rotation. 
you know, albeit there weren't there weren't a lot of crops being grown in Derbyshire, but we had a strict crop a strict crop rotation, so you didn't grow the same thing in the same field two years on the trot. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, it, it wasn't a hand to mouth existence, but it wasn't far from it. But it was happy, you know, and you you learned to live within your means, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I remember wearing clothes that my mother had made, you know, and um, I remember watching my grandma unpick woolen jumpers so she could mm. read it that kind of thing yeah uh, we had we had rag rugs around the floor you know yeah. and like I say I didn't feel like we were poor um but at the same time when I can when you know when I was old enough to compare myself to other people I realized I'd had a very different childhood to most and the loss of the fam of the fa- family home or and the farm if you worked so hard for it that must have yeah. been devastating yeah, was- and, and feeling the the effect of your parents seeing it. Yeah, that was that was a particularly um, memorable moment, and I can remember I can remember sitting away from it all because it was just too much to take in. Yeah. I can remember sitting away from it all with my dog, saving her from being auctioned, and uh, and realizing that um, this farming life was probably not for me anymore. Because mm. you know, to have a farming life, you need a farm, and we hadn't got a farm anymore. Yeah, and I can remember even then, at the age of ten, thinking, "Wow, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with my life now?" And That's a big question for a ten-year-old. Exactly. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I've always been a driven person, and I think the drive started then. I thought, you know, I'm going to have to make my own way in the world somehow. Wow. Uh, even at the age of ten. Wow, the responsibility of that, or the feeling of that. Yeah. 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 So at sixteen, you're in this in the city. So the sixteen year old with all his hormones and it, yeah. So where was? Yeah. What was so yeah, then? so sixteen, you know. So um, I don't know what was happening then. I was definitely missing living in the countryside, but I was also enjoying being a sixteen year old, you know, yeah. and all the things that sixteen year olds enjoy doing um, with friends that I could see in the evenings instead of being on my own in a in the sticks. Um, but there was something happening there. And I remember, um, first of all, sitting down with the careers guidance guy at, at school, as you're approaching your, we call them GCEs, uh, you know, you kind of 16 year old exams. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with your life now, Williams? Um, and, uh, this career advisor, first of all said, um, so have you considered becoming an apprentice, at the Ferodo Brake Linings factory, which was the only factory in the area. And I said, I've considered it, and I'm definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way I could be locked up in a factory yeah. for eight hours a day. And he says, well, in that case, what's it to be? Army, Navy, or Air Force? And that was, you know, that was as far as this particular careers <laughs> guidance counsellor could go with his imagination. And, and I took him seriously, you know, and I thought, right, okay, well, I've, Navy, let's go and see the world. So I actually applied to join the Navy, and, and I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. Ah, I yeah, cool. That'll be the perfect job for me. Um, and, of course, you know, you go to the recruitment office, and they're, they're all smiles, and, yes, we'll have you, you know, and this is what you can do, and this is where you're going to travel to. But uh, at the end of all of those entrance exams, most of which I passed with flying colours, they then landed it on me that I would need a physics O level to be trained as a mm. helicopter pilot amongst other things. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even studying physics, so that ruled that out. And then they tried to persuade me to be what they called an artificer, which is basically somebody who mends helicopters. <laughs> it wasn't, well, I thought, well, that's not to be. Um, and at the same time, probably because of this, this kind of excitement for travel and the sea, um, I applied to go on the Rotary, the Rotary Club in Buxton, had one ticket a year, to sail on the Winston Churchill, which is a tall mastered ship. Mm. And something about this fascinated me, and I thought I, I would really like to do this. So off my own bat, I applied for it. None of my mates applied for it. They all thought I was a bit weird doing it. Uh, and I got all the way through all the interviews and fell at the last hurdle because I found out later um, someone with better connections than me mm. was able mm. to secure that ticket. Mm. And it must have been a conversation of um, some importance in the staff room at school because within a couple of weeks, 
the PE teacher at school approached me and said, look, we've got, we get two tickets every year um, for an outward bound course and we'd like to offer it to you. Is that and how so, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Without this, I wouldn't be where I am now. Life is what happens when you're making other plans, you know, or, yeah, actually you think you get disappointed by something that you can't achieve and then actually this comes up. Okay, yeah. Well, I I call them pivotal moments, Mm. you know, so I I can track back through my life when the pivotal moments were. Those those times that stay with you forever. Yeah. Usually where you make a significant decision. Yes. um, and And then carry out on that decision, you know. Uh, yeah, so um, so that summer, uh, the summer of 1972, giving my age away now, um, I went off to Outward Bound. I got on the train and off we went, off I went on my own um, and eventually found myself at a place called Abidovi Outward Bound in Wales. I'd never heard of Outward Bound. I didn't know what to expect. Um, and I rocked up at this outdoor centre with another 120 I would call them men. I think I was probably the youngest on the course. Most of them were kind of aged 18 to 21. And we were put into a watch of 12 lads with an instructor. Uh, and there were 12 watchers. And, uh, and, and I began four weeks that changed my life. You know, um, I think Outward Bound changes everybody's life, but it certainly changed mine. And, uh, and I became aware of the fact that I was lucky enough to be at the very first Outward Bound Centre that had started internationally mm. uh, by Kurt Hahn, uh, the big German philosopher who, who um, helped to establish Abadovi Outward Bound back in the late 40s um, as a result of um, his partner was... Um, in business or in the outbound movement was from the blue funnel line. And uh, what, what he'd recognized in the, during the war with the merchant shipping lines that were running between America and Britain and being attacked by U-boats, what, what they'd recognized was that a lot of the young lads who were uh, on boats that had been torpedoed uh, were giving up before they needed to. They were, they were getting into the lifeboats and then assuming all was gone. And so the, the initial idea behind Outward Bound was to take people um, who were working as merchant seamen, young lads who were working as merchant seamen, and strengthen them, strengthen their character, increase their resilience is what we call it now. Yeah. In those yeah. days, they called it character training. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I experienced yeah. four weeks of what Kurt had designed many, many years before. And it was indeed character training. We were up at six o'clock every morning for a run. Uh, I think they call it a run and a dip. You had to jump in the mm-hmm. sea. You know, this was, it was June, but the sea was still mm-hmm. cold mm-hmm. and do a bit of a swim in the sea. And then you do your duties around the center and kind of get all of your jobs done. And then there'd be breakfast and then there'd be an assembly while we watched the flag ra- raised and uh, an inspirational talk from one of the instructors. And then you'd be off for your day's activities, which included sailing kayaking, rock climbing, abseiling, orienteering, big expeditions over the mountains. Um, and, and most of it um, self-reliant. You know, you were kind of expected to take responsibility for yourself and your own safety, learn how to navigate. Lots of um, uh, PE and kind of swimming and physical activities, a massive ropes course. And everything I did there, I was doing for the first time. And everything I did there made me realize that I had capabilities beyond my imagination. Ah. And I was successful at all of these things. The one thing I was good at was running. And I, I won the cross-country race. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of gave me quite a lot of confidence. But the other thing was that um, on the first night that I got there, I had a little chat with myself. And I, and I, and I said, right, okay, you're quite shy. You're quite introverted. To survive this four weeks, you're going to have to bring yourself out of your shell a little. So that first night in the um, in the dormitory or the bunkhouse, I can't remember what we called it, 
um, I decided to tell a few jokes and they went down so well, I told a few more jokes and <laughs> I probably kept people giggling until the early hours of the morning. <laughs> and and they, wow. they then nicknamed me Spike as a result, you know, <laughs> as I'm in Spike Lee. So that was the name that stuck for the rest of the four weeks. <laughs> I love that. I love that you set the intention and this, you know, that you're using this opportunity and that stretch. And it also sounds like your own rite of passage from a lad to a man. You know, this is a, a ground for, for young men to really know their potential yeah. and to real that physical challenge and, and uh, rigor and resilience and, yeah, mm. to emerge out of that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, for anyone listening to this who's had a similar experience, and it's important to emphasize that, you know, outward bound is often an abused phrase. It's a bit similar to a hoover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of there's only one hoover. There yeah. are a lot of outdoor courses, mm-hmm. there's only one outward bound. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and anyway, uh, some of the other things we did were life-saving. You know, so we provided a patrol on the beach. Uh, we were involved in mounted rescue. We were involved in the lifeboats, launching the lifeboats. Um, we did a lot of community work with local farmers and it was a it was a really grounding experience mm. that, that had a massive effect on me. Uh, and it wasn't it wasn't very sophisticated in that there was no one there helping you to interpret it or sit down at the end of the day yeah. and say well, what did that mean to you. You had to do all of that for yourself. Yeah. But you know, I was clever enough to realise that this was an opportunity that I needed to do the most of. And then and then we got to the end of the. Uh, of the course and you know I got my little badge my outward bound badge and uh you know got on the train to to, to set off home <clears throat> I remember this as if it was yesterday as well you know so every time the train stopped you know there's 100 and 120 of us got on the train at the beginning every time the train stopped people would get off big big farewells big goodbyes or I'd get off onto another train with some other people and and eventually I ended up you know at Buxton station on my own crying my eyes out um, and, 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 and crying because it, it had finished, mm. crying because I was confused um, that I was coming back to a place that I'd left. And when I left, I was a different person. Yeah, yeah, and returning the, the yeah. And, and all these and emotions. Absolutely, mm. you know, really confused, really messed up. Mm. And, and this is the next pivotal moment. So at that point I said to myself, you know, whatever, whatever these people have, have done to me, I want to do it to other people. <laughs> I don't know what you call it, but that's, that's what yeah. my career would be. And no matter, sort of all that sort of even uncomfortableness, you know, like actually I want even them to feel that because that confusion and because and yeah. you know something's moving with that. Absolutely. And then, yeah, and the transference, like, I don't know, yeah. I don't know what yeah. it is, but I want that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'd learned to do things I never thought I could do. I'd, wow. I'd recognise yeah. that I could... I could choose the kind of person I wanted to be and experiment with that and yeah. build confidence in that. Yeah. I'd recognize that I was pretty good at forming relationships that I didn't think I was. I was quite good as a leader. Mm. Um, and, and I wanted, rather than wanting to become all of that myself, I wanted to give other people the chance to experience that. And uh, the best language I had for it at the time was an instructor because that's mm. what we had there, you know, mm. group instructors. Mm. Uh, but this is back in, when, you know, we're back in 1972 here and mm. there were no places you could go to to get a degree in instructing, yeah. you know. It wasn't heard of. Uh, but what I, what I was intelligent enough to realise was that I'd probably have a better chance of doing that if I stayed on at school for a couple more years and, uh, you know, did some A-levels and, perhaps went on to further education from there. So I went straight back to see the headmaster because I'd already <laughs> told him um, six weeks earlier that I was leaving. <laughs> and I said, look, I've changed my mind. I'd like to stay. Um, and by that time, I'd got my O-level results and they were a lot better than everybody expected. So they were quite happy to have me stay. Mm. And I did, a, I did another two years at school through to my A-levels, which, I did, again, I did quite well with. Did it uh, include but, physics? No. <laughs> Uh, but what I did do during those two years is I, um, because, you know, in the sixth form, you get as much free time as you get study time. So I used my free time to help out at the local junior school. So I kind of learned a little bit about how it was to teach kids. <clears throat> and they gave, I was a really good swimmer as well as a good runner. And they gave me a chance to teach them in the swimming pool as well. So uh, I learned how to be a swimming instructor over those two years. I learned how to be a lifeguard instructor. So I was getting the kind of basic mm. skills together without 
having access to all of the outdoor activities that I was really inspired by. And then um, as I came towards the end of those two years, uh, the teachers approached me and said, look, you're doing really well with geography. Um, you should go on to university and study geography. And I said, well, that's not going to, that's not going to help me do to others what they did to me. Um, <laughs> and so I started looking around on my own and I, and I, I eventually recognized that training as a teacher was probably going to be the closest skill set that I would need. Um, and then I also recognized that I needed to find a place where that could be delivered in the outdoors. Mm. And uh, I came across in my research this place called Charlotte Mason College in Ambleside, um, we, where there was a, a, a course being run by a guy called Colin Mortlock, who was the pioneer of adventure education. Um, and I could train to be a teacher while specializing in, in adventure education. Mm-hmm. So it was the dream ticket, the absolute mm-hmm. ticket. So I applied, um, I got an interview, my dad took me up for the interview. I passed the interview and I was offered a place. And um, so that was the place for me then. I, I turned my back on university and went to teach training college instead. It was, it was run under Lancaster University. Uh, but it was it was a place where you learned to be a teacher, yeah. and it, and it was steeped in the history, funnily enough, of what we now call experiential learning. So the late Charlotte Mason, she was the first person. She was dead a long time before I went, mm. um, but she was the first person to train teachers in the UK, um, and she was actually training um, nannies, um, and she was training them to deliver. Um, education outside so she you know nature walks mm-hmm. learning from nature you know here we go again mm-hmm. so so it was all around me while I was at Charlotte Mason College this um learning from the outdoors was all around me it wasn't just about the adventure education it was also yeah. how people learned about geography how people learned about um maths English um you know chemistry mm-hmm. all, all of all of this was delivered through experience yeah. And and so again I got really excited about how all of these kind of coincidences were were, were yeah, coming just, from yeah. a point of view in the right direction. I love um also the you know the, the steps towards it, you know, like you didn't have access to the to the big outdoor activities, but then you know, where are the opportunities of uh going into, you know, helping juniors or the swimming, you know, just the the steps towards that and also being clear about your vision, you know, be being sort of open of what comes in. But, you know, I don't need to be in the university, no matter how much you think, uh, you know, geography could be, but actually just stick, sticking to your, to your vision. And then I suppose it's the sort of the, once again, the, the container of, of nature, like being the source and the, the overall teacher and stakeholder and that. So during that time, I, I started to put things together and, you know, I'd had this incredibly powerful experience at Outward Bound. And I was now being uh, educated by, a person who um, wrote on the philosophy of adventure mm. um, and, and started to bring all these ideas together and recognize that my journey was going to be about um, helping people change their behavior, change the way they are, change the way they see the world through adventure in the outdoors. And that, that became very quickly, that became... Uh, my passion and my vision and my desire and uh, and so uh, I left college after three years worked for a, a new organization that was running adventure holidays for kids and uh, worked really hard through that first summer delivering seven-day adventure holidays and we delivered these holidays as if they were our bound courses yeah. I mean, these kids got an incredible experience. They did everything, and we did everything with them. Um, and I got to the end of that summer, and it was quite satisfying, but it, I couldn't see how that was ever going to be a career. Mm. Um, we then, were in the same organization, were lucky enough to be part of um, some pioneering work with young unemployed people who, um, through government schemes, were given opportunities to train um, in different skills and our job was to run a five-day residential for them in what we called life and social skills so you know how do you form relationships how do you lead teams 
how do you communicate um, and again we used the outdoors and a residential setting to achieve all of that so that was exciting mm. it was pilot it was brand new and we got amazing results from it during during my time at college I was able to persuade the powers that be that instead of doing a teacher training practice in a school for you know you used to do a big one in the middle of the in the middle of your course in the second year instead of doing that I managed to persuade them to send me back to outer bound so um, uh, I was on the other side of the fence now and I was I was there down at Abu Dhabi with with a few of the people who were there when I'd been a student oh, lovely. Um, but learning how to deliver this mm. incredible experience uh, which was really powerful and I remember I remember inviting Colin Mortlock down there to see what we were up to because he was a little bit skeptical of the outward bound movement but um, you know, after he saw us in action and saw what we were up to then, wow. I think he was quite impressed with what we were learning and what we were doing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then, um, uh, so I, I decided to go back again to Outward Bound. I went back to Outward Bound um, a year after I'd left college and, and worked there for about six months, £12 a week. Um, <laughs> you know, I've never been famous for paying a lot of money. Um, and at that time, the kind of... The inference when you worked there was you'd only do it for two or three years and then you get a proper job. So uh, there still wasn't a career in, yeah. in, this, in this line of work. And I enjoyed working there on that second occasion as well. But I was starting to see some of the limitations mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, my ability to innovate new ideas. It was a very, very tried and tested environment. and mm-hmm. It was quite difficult to mm-hmm. do things differently. Yeah, they'd had a a sort of formula or rigidity around that. And at the same time, the business model was starting to become a bit strange. You know, four weeks is a long time for people to spend away from work or away from home or away from school or whatever. Anyway, rightly or wrongly, at the end of about six months, I thought, okay, I'm not going to be able to build the career I need, the lifelong career I need, uh, working here. So I went back to the Lake District the place that I've, you know, has become my home, yeah. the place that I love, and uh, and worked for that first company again for a little while as the director of training at the age mm-hmm. of 22, mm-hmm. um, where we did even more pioneering work with um, the National Coal Board, ah, with okay. people, people beginning their careers as, as um, first-line supervisors, yeah. uh, and young people from the post office, as well as lots more... Uh, government-backed schemes and we I was also given the freedom to start experimenting with um, using the outdoors as a way of uh, helping young offenders to correct their behavior you know in a kind of facilitated developmental way Mm. as opposed to providing them as a punishment. Mm. And what Um, was it about the outdoors that helped that process? Well it was you know I, I did I did this work um, at that time, and I also, it's, it's also how we started with impact. Mm. Uh, the, 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 the methodology was something called intermediate treatment. And basically, the magistrates would identify kids who were at risk because they'd committed a crime and, and were kind of starting to descend into that, that circular life of crime, punishment, crime, punishment. Uh, but, but something somewhere, somebody had seen something somewhere that would give them the confidence or the optimism that they could be turned around. So they'd, they'd be formed up into these, these, these kids, again, usually boys, uh, typically aged 16 to 18. They'd be put into groups of nine with a probation officer. And the rule was if they could spend six months out of trouble uh, and, and met rigorously their probation officer for an, an evening every week, um, and participated in our program, mm. then at the end of that six months, they would leave scot-free and there'd be no blemish on their character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were troubled kids, these, you know, they weren't, they weren't easy to work with. And so we used to do a weekend at the beginning of that, um, and that was tough. Mm-hmm. You know, these kids hadn't met each other before. They were all kind of trying to work out who was the biggest, who was the best, who was the bravest. And uh, the first experience we gave them was we we would typically meet them at a car park um, with their probation officer and put them in our, put them into our minibus and we'd drive up to this uh, area of the lakes that is very, very quiet. 
out on the western on the western fells uh, and we, we had a little kind of um, bunkhouse that we ran the program from up there <clears throat> where no one was going to disturb us and we were not going to disturb anyone else mm. and on the way there there's a very um, narrow river gorge with probably about a 15 foot cliff on the side of it into very deep water and so you know winter spring summer whatever the weather we would stop the minibus outside this this little gorge we hadn't said anything to any of them at this point we're just listening to them bickering in the background and <laughs> doing the things that boys do when they're trying to show how great they are <laughs> and we'd like and and, and, and we kind of get them out out the minibus and and stand on the edge of this little cliff above the water and uh, you know, one of us, one of us would say something provocative, like, "Let's see how hard you really are." You had to make it into a challenge, <laughs> and uh, and then one of us would jump in the water, and the other one would stay on the top there with him and say, "Right, off you go, one after the other." <laughs> and inevitably, the kids in the back of the, the kids in the bus that had said nothing would be the first to jump, and the ones that had been the loudest and the most cocky and the, the most confident would be the ones that you'd had to encourage to get over the edge. Uh, and that that was the beginning of the weekend, yeah. and then the rest of the weekend was spent just creating an environment. Yeah, uh, but it was fantastic. That's a nice equaler, and even like the sort of the shock therapy, the cold water that consciousness or that challenge yeah. or, you know, it's quite sort of, I, I, know, again, right but yeah. total, total elation, you know, yeah. you get them in the minibus afterwards and they really feel like Yeah. I'm alive. Yeah. I'm in my body. Yeah. Mm. One, one of the many philosophies that I came across when I was training was that why do young people offend? You know, you could argue that it's their own form of adventure. Mm. Yes. And, you know, if you can find an, a, a more, yeah a more acceptable outlet for that adventure, which is what we were doing, then they don't need to offend because mm. they're getting it elsewhere. So three or four weeks later, we'd do a whole week with them. And that's when we went for the behavior change. And you would, during that week, you'd move from being disciplinarian and kind of adult on your case through to being one of your best mates. Mm. Um, and, and you'd use that kind of mentoring experience and that, that kind of uh, counselling experience mm-hmm. to help them really explore what was going off in their life, mm-hmm. uh, what they could what what they could change, what they couldn't change, and how they needed to react to some of the things that were happening. And uh, at the end of that week, that you know, they didn't want to leave you. They didn't want to leave the whole experience. Similar to how I felt uh, getting off the train at the end of the outward bound mm-hmm. experience. You know, these young mm-hmm. people just didn't want to go back. Yeah, <clears throat> but they were confident and they were able to go back and. Yeah. And um, and we we used to say to them at the end of that week, right? Okay, if you can stay out of trouble um, and earn enough money to pay for your food and accommodation, we'll run a free weekend for you three months time. And of course, that's a massive incentive because they want to come back and do it again. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, it also forced them to be entrepreneurial. Yeah, and taking responsibility. And, yeah, yeah. And, and then at the end of that six months, they'd come back for their final weekend. And the results we were getting from that work were just uh, not one child reoffended, not one wow. young girl reoffended during those yeah. six month experiences. Yeah. You know, obviously didn't track yeah. So it was really wow. powerful. Beautiful. And you started Impact at that point. I interrupted you. Well, the, the story, about, the story kind of blended into Impact. Yeah. Yeah, I got to a point where again I was um, I'm married now, mm. and I'm earning very very little money. And it didn't, the organization I was working for didn't feel that stable. Um, and so, uh, along with two other friends, we were talking one night. We said, well, why don't we do this for ourselves? And, and so we did. And that's <laughs> how Impact started. And, and we started with no money at all. Incredible. Um, we managed to create some relationships with um, other um, intermediate treatment groups that wanted to use the same methodology that we'd been pioneering. The my main contact from uh, the National Coal Board said, "If you're setting up on your own, I'm coming with you." Mm. So we won yeah. that business right from the word yeah. go, and we we managed to win some work with some local teams of apprentices, and so there was enough work there to make things happen. Um, but most. 
most of the money, well, all of the money we made went straight into the business. We didn't, mm. we didn't draw any salary for the first three years. Mm. Um, so it's pretty hard, you know. I mean, both of my partners had income coming in from their, from their partners, from their mm. wife's girlfriends. Mm. And I was living off my wife's earnings and she just moved up to the area to be with me. Mm. Um, and she was working as a hairdresser's assistant. So yeah, she wasn't earning a lot. So I can I can remember again living in this rented cottage that was the absolute pit, um, and living off um, tin tomatoes on toast for quite a long time. Yeah. As we started to build the company up from there, yeah. and the sacrifices, humble roots knew that you could do it. Yeah, could, exactly. yeah. So so things went from from good to great. You know, it's yeah the amount of commitment and passion we put into the work we did soon got soon got the attention of people and they started to use us and the business started to grow we had a major partnership fallout after 18 months um and that again was a pivotal moment that's the time when i thought do i give up now mm. or do i carry on because every penny we'd made at that point was used to buy out the third mm. partner mm. and beyond it tough. yeah it was tough yeah uh, you know, and then the rest is history, really. The, the, the organization grew and grew, and we've always stayed close to our values. We've always stayed close to uh, the principles that we've used to develop people. And we started Impact in 1980, and around about 1983, we were lucky enough with the, our clients from the post office to come across an opportunity to provide similar experiences for civil servants working in the post office who were about to form a new organization called British Telecom. Mm. British Telecom came out of the post office. Mm. British Telecom was to be an entrepreneurial, profit-making organization as opposed to part of the government. So we started pioneering this program called the HIT course, High Impact Training, mm. um, a five-day experience for senior managers in the civil service in the post office who were going to move into or already moved into British Telecom. And it, it was fairly um, it was fairly new for its time. You know, some people who didn't really know what it was about saw it as some kind of adventure holiday in the Lake District. Other people saw it as some kind of expensive military training. <laughs> but the reality was it was um, a very, very carefully designed experience that enabled managers to learn to be leaders and to inspire people and to bring out the very best in, in, in themselves as, as key people in this newly formed organization. But it was of such interest to everybody that we were approached by, I think it was Granada the first time round, Granada, which was one of the ITV independent television yeah. companies. And they made, a, they made a kind of short film uh, that was put on the end of the 10 o'clock news. There used to be a slot at the end of the 10 o'clock news called And Finally. It was usually a kind of tongue-in-cheek type of um, story. And this particular And Finally was how managers from the newly formed British Telecom were being trained uh, in the Lake District. And there were pictures of these 55-year-old plus guys and girls floating down rivers on kayaks and fighting their way through snow and and uh, you know it was quite it was quite a thing. <laughs> and off the back of that, we then did a breakfast time TV slot. We were then approached by the BBC for a half hour program, and then Channel Four did a one hour documentary on the work we were doing with the coal board. Mm. And uh, before we knew it, everyone knew about us, wow. yeah. and uh, people were beating a path to our door for more of the same. And. That's how we grew in the UK. Interestingly, um, that's what fueled our decision to buy our first hotel to run the programmes from uh, in 1985. And then in 1987, we were approached by an organisation in Japan who'd seen one of those films <laughs> and said, uh, we'd, we really think this could work here. Do you want to come out here in partnership with us and, and see if you can make it work here? Uh, which was my first big experience of working outside of the UK culture. Now, I'm, I'm, so I'm, and from those successes in Japan, we then got the kind of the bug to grow the business globally. And so here we are now with 
17 offices around the world. Celebrating 40 years. 40 years this year. year. What a weird time to celebrate it, eh? Mm, um, yeah. All the restrictions we've got in place. You know, luckily we've been pioneering virtual experiential learning and that has really kind of come to the fore now, as you can imagine, mm. because the majority of work that we're doing globally is in the virtual space. Uh, so I'm very grateful that we started to work in that way probably 10 years ago yeah. now. You've got a wonderful offering around that yeah. and a bringing in it in a real experiential way. In terms of that outdoors, what do you think it, that evokes in people? I mean, it evoked it in you, but in terms of people's consciousness and development and growth, what do you think that's so special about the outdoors? So I'll get, I'll get philosophical now, shall yeah, I? Yeah, please. You know, my, my start point is we're all part of nature and yet society has encouraged or enabled or pushed us quite a long way away from our natural roots and I and I think most of us either consciously or unconsciously have a yearning to get back to that environment I think we're naturally drawn towards um, the feelings that we get when we're when we're in a natural environment and whilst people feel comfortable in the city and in the town and Many people prefer that kind of way of life to uh, a way of life in the outdoors. Um, When you actually enable people to immerse themselves in a natural environment, an outdoor environment, they they very quickly recognize something or realize that something is happening inside of them that perhaps they weren't expecting. There's There's a concept in Japan that has been prevalent for many, many years called Shinrin-Raku, mm, I think. I it, right? Yeah. And, and ba- the basic translation of that means to bathe in the forest. And, um, and, and, and it's, 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 a common, it's a commonly accepted activity in Japan that, um, you know, probably on, on an annual basis or more often as required, when the stresses and strains of city life become too much to cope with, you take yourself off for a walk in the forest um, you go on your own. You don't take anything with you along the lines of mobile phones. You enter the walk without any kind of idea or preconceptions about what you want to get out of the walk. Um, and then you just wander. You wander through the forest. And when, you, when you've wandered for long enough, you, co- you re-emerge relaxed, mm. at one with yourself, mm. um, having benefited both physically and emotionally from that experience. Mm. Um, And I I think, to answer your question, I think there's an element of that uh, that comes through to the surface when we bring people into that outdoor environment. Mm. And then we kind of spice it up a little bit as well. So we do a lot of work around what we call solos, where people will purposely spend time on their own in the outdoors, maybe considering a question or or maybe just ask to reflect on their life or, you know, my favorite question is, um, so how did you get to where you are now and where are you going to go to next? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a great place it to is. start a solo from. Yeah. Uh, but we also spice it up by putting people into um, experiences together collectively and asking them to explore each other's experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think people then, that learning environment is accelerated by sharing perspectives across a group and, mm. and recognizing that different people react in different ways to exactly the same stimulus. Mm. And, and conversations, again, begin around how people are feeling differently mm. and why they're feeling differently. You know, a night under the stars, mm. um, a climb to the top of a peak and the views that come down from that, mm. wandering up a river, you know, waist deep in water. These all emphasize how we can kind of mix and be at one with nature. Mm. And, and in return, uh, we benefit from that experience, either individually or collectively. I think adventure is an important part of that mm. experience as well. So, so adventure for me is putting people into a situation where they're not 100% sure what the outcome is going to be. So there's that element of... Mm fear that element of discomfort Mm. that element of uncertainty that 
is, um, you know, where we talk about, everybody talks about being outside your comfort zone. That's where the learning happens. And it's true. That is where the learning happens. And, and again, the outdoors provide some fantastic opportunities mm. for that to be created. I'm not mm. saying that adventure has to happen in an outdoor environment, but it, it, it's, it's very easy for us to create that. Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of a natural home <laughs> for it. <laughs> So I'm a massive believer in, mm. in, in the power of nature in its own sense. Mm. Just sitting, you know, in a grassy field yeah. and, looking at the, and looking at the view is a restorative experience. Yeah. And, I, you know, I'm not clever enough to be able to say why, but I've spent my, my whole life experiencing that and I know it's real. Interviewed Roy, and because he always talks about the no shit Sherlock studies, it's like all the science that proves that. It's like yeah. what we intuitively know that yeah. if we do that, how restorative and, you know, we feel. Well, that, that intuition is quite an interesting thing, you know. I often say that all I have is intuition yeah. and um, I don't... It, no one needs to prove it to me. Mm. I don't need it proving. I don't need to know why the psychology is evidence that this works because I experience it and, mm. and, and intuitively I know it's a good thing to do mm. and it's a good thing for all people to do. Mm. Um, and, and all people need to do is experience it and they know the same. Mm. But um, do you sell it in that way though? No, you you can't. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just trust your children. Yeah. In fact, you know, we don't sell the outdoors. We don't sell adventure. We yeah. what we sell is a process that will help people lead more effectively, mm. or form more efficient relationships within a team, mm. or help an organisation work in a more profitable manner. So we we sell we sell the outcome, mm. and we keep the um, process as secretive as possible mm. because until people have experienced it, they probably wouldn't be inclined to believe it. And, and yet when they've experienced it, they, they often get hooked on it mm. and, and recognize that it's, it should be an important part of their lives. Mm. You know, my other philosophy is that um, uh, organizations are basically collections of people, you know, and if you want to change an organization, you start with the people in that organization and, and, and we have this concept in impact called liberating human potential. Mm, I love you know, if that. You can, if you can tap into the potential of the human being to decide for themselves what's right, what's wrong, and what we need to do more of, mm. then by default, you're going to change the organizations that mm. those, those people were within. And on that, like in terms of reimaging the future, you've got a view on, you know, the conversations we collectively need to step into as uh, organizations and society. I think I'm at a, an interesting place in my life. Um, you know, I, I, I've just passed the big 6 um, so inevitably you start to reflect on what you've achieved and what you still want to achieve. Um, I think you kind of move into the altruistic stage of your life and uh, you start to kind of accelerate some of the activities that you've been spending time doing all of your life, but you realize you haven't got as much of your life left. <laughs> and so you might want to make create a bit more of an impact um, to coin a phrase. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, and, and I think against the backdrop of COVID-19, um, this is a great time to, for people to reimagine who they are, who they want to be, what changes they would like to make in their lives, uh, what changes they would like to make in the organizations that they work within. And, um, and I think we've all been um, completely amazed at the pivot we've managed to achieve into the virtual world. Mm. Uh, and we've been able to identify some of the advantages of working in that way, you know, not, not having to get into the car every morning and drive to work uh, and, the, and the amount of money that's saved in terms of petrol and the amount of the carbon emissions that have been re reduced because of that, not, not necessarily having to fly to a different co country to, mm. to take a holiday not having to buy a car full of toilet rolls to survive on. You know, there's, there's, there's been a lot of lessons. You know, it's a horrible backdrop for lessons to be learned from. People are dying. People are suffering. People are being restricted from seeing members of their family. You know, it's an awful 
awful situation for us all to be in. But it's also a learning experience and we should see it as a learning experience and we should use it as a way of, of reimagining our future. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think there are so many lessons in there that we can extract and use if we choose to do so that will enable us to live lives that are more kind to the planet and more caring to ourselves. Mm. But that process needs to be intentional. You know, it's, it's not going to happen by magic. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, need to, there needs to be conversations encouraged in organisations, across groups of people, about what does this mean to us and what do we want to do differently as a result of it. And, mm. and the things that give me hope, and I'm not stupid enough to realise that this short in the history of the world, um, lockdown um, has done anything else other than raise our awareness. Mm, mm. Uh, But the little stories that give me hope are, you know, the canals of Venice were running clean for Mm. a short while Mm. with fish returning to them. Mm. And the story I like to tell the most is the one of the killer whales, the orcas Mm. off the the point of Gibraltar, who got used to having the sea to themselves because there were no pleasure yachts and very little shipping moving around. They moved in big time and, you know, different pods of orcas were having a fantastic Mm. time playing around (laughs) uh, in that area of the sea, Mm. in that area of the Mediterranean. And then as the um, pleasure boats returned, as lockdown finished, excuse my French, they were a bit pissed off by it. And they started attacking the pleasure boats and moving up alongside them and trying to get them out of their space, you know. Oh, what a fantastic... Yeah, it's such a, yeah. like, just given that short space yeah. of time, nature yeah. nearly managed yeah. to take over yeah. again. And so I, and I then move on to, you know, more of a kind of spiritual uh, belief that I have that may not necessarily be shared by all people, but it's one that I have. And that is that um, I do believe that nature will always find its own balance. And I, and I think that we have become a force of nature, a powerful force of nature. There are too many of us on this planet and we are doing too much damage to this planet. And we stand to suffer from that. And, um, you know, in my own view, COVID-19 is an indicator of yeah. how nature mm. will restore mm. the balance it needs to restore mm. for, for the planet to survive. And, mm. and that planet can survive with us on it Mm. or it can quite happily survive without us and we have to recognize that we are not in control Mm. we can make a positive influence and we can make some decisions now that will enable us to live more in harmony with our neighbors on the planet Mm. um, instead of continually believing that we are the ones in charge absolutely and yeah i love that in terms of it being a it can be our pivotal, each individual person's collective pivotal point. Prepared to say about your own healing journey, I think you did, went on a walk, the Camino de Santiago at a right, yeah. time in your life. Yeah, as you know, my wife had a long battle with cancer. Uh, she was first diagnosed with breast cancer um, 12 years ago, no, 13 years ago. And um, after some kind of very invasive therapies and and operations was able to return to a normal life for 10 years and uh, with the all clear, but then it returned and it returned into her lungs and into her brain. And we had the diagnosis three years ago that she would pass away. Um, and she did pass away the, uh, January this year. So it's been quite a tough year for me coming to terms with that uh, on top of COVID and all of the threats that's, that's made to the business. Yeah. Um, but last summer, uh, I was lucky enough to be invited by a, f- a few of my old school friends, funnily enough, um, to participate in what is known as the Camino de Santiago, uh, which is a kind of journey many, many people participate in. That if you do the whole thing, and, and, the, and I think there are five or six different ways of doing it or routes, but if you do the whole thing, then you, you, it can literally take you over a month. Uh, we chose to do the um, the last week of walking into Santiago, which is the minimum you can do to still get your little certificate at the end of the day. And I must admit, I set off to do this um, with the very best of intentions, but not really appreciating 
how important this this Camino is mm. in the lives of the people who participate in it. And uh, and so we were walking every day for um, seven days. And each day we would meet up with different people and I would talk to them and find out what their story was and recognize that we all had similar stories. We were, we were all walking for a reason. Um, and, um, and again, you know, we were walking through nature, through the, the Galician countryside, which mm. is beautiful mm. uh, and quite primitive. I saw quite a few farms there that I recognized, <laughs> recognized from my childhood. And that walk, that intentional walk with a, with a finish helped me to come to terms with what was about to happen and, and what had been happening. And, and, and a lot of that was just being outside, uh, purposely making my way from one place to another and, mm. and, and having the time and the company and mm. of people to, to talk it through with. Yeah. Mm. So it was, it was incredible, incredibly powerful experience. Mm. And all different levels. And I, you know, those walking through landscapes and your own probably, Emotional landscape as exactly as yeah wow beautiful and I, yeah. and I don't, you know I'm a I'm a huge introvert mm. but I chose to do this publicly um, and I'm not sure why I just I needed to share it with people yeah and what was interesting was um, I posted I posted each day on on LinkedIn and and LinkedIn is you know it's not I don't do Facebook but LinkedIn mm. isn't it's a business tool yeah. <laughs> not the kind of place you would expect some guy doing the Camino de Santiago to put in stories. <laughs> uh, but I put them there anyway, and I didn't know whether it would work or not. And, and, and I got thousands of followers um, on, just by telling this story. Yeah, people want to hear stories. And thank you, Dave. I know you have to go. And so thank you for sharing yours. I'll put the links into Impact International in the episode notes. So we'll pause here and see you back for the next Earth Converse podcast. In the meantime, go out and enjoy nature, one conversation at a time.